Uh, well, you found us in part four or five of a series we're calling Identity Crisis. This series is based around questions that we all ask, even though we don't put them in these words. And we've asked some big questions in this series about humanity. And we opened up this series by talking about this question, why am I here? You may or may not have put it in those terms, but we tried to say that you're here to image God and to love him and others. This is the essence of humanity as we see it from a Christian perspective. Then we asked this question the second week, what am I worth? Again, you may not have put it that way in your own mind, but you thought that at some point. What is my value? What is my worth? We talked about that you're worth the life of God, that God through his son Christ died for you. And this is where we, we come. And then last week we asked a weird question, and it was this question, what am I made of? Because we needed to get around understanding the constitution, the makeup of man. Are we material, immaterial, physical beings, spiritual beings? What are we, and what difference does it make? And so we talked about the need to see both at the same time. You can't really have one without the other. And, and what I want to talk about this morning in this series, the unfolding development of understanding our own humanity, is the elephant in the room. And that is, of all the conversation we may have about trying to conquer the world, whatever world it is that you are in, whether it's the world of um, you know, your family, your home life, your business, education world, uh, insurance world, whatever world that you're in, whatever world you spend your, most of your time in, as you think about your future in that, we have to address the elephant in the room. And that is that we're actually... None of us are actually all that good. <laughs> We're just not all that great. In fact, it was, it was um, in the 1960s, uh, on the heels of the Vietnam War, that the, the uh, comic uh, said this. He said, we have met the enemy and it is us. That the problem with all of our lives is that we take ourselves wherever we go that our flaws at home become our flaws at work, and the little things that we recognize actually have been recognized by people around us before we even knew that they existed. And the problem with all of us is that as much as we want to be awesome, we also have these kind of fatal flaws that hurt ourselves and hurt other people. I'm in a, if you will, in a business that that is uh, accelerated significantly. I regularly come face to face with my own hypocrisy. Uh, part of my job is to do what I'm doing this morning and to put words together to try to speak to you and communicate something of significance, I hope, to help you see God in your own faith. But here's what I know, that if I talk to you, for example, on a Sunday morning about loving your neighbor, it's usually around 12.30 in the afternoon after lunch where I have already had a not loving thought about your neighbor, right? Like it doesn't take me long not to live up to the very ideals that I espouse in all the things that I write or speak about. It doesn't take me long to, to realize in my own parenting I want to be encouraging, not discouraging, but in my impatience it doesn't take me long to run out of patience and all of a sudden do the very things that I don't really want to be doing. You know, right now I want to lose about five pounds, and last night at the dessert social I ate about five pounds worth of dessert, and this is part of the reality of life for all of us, that none of us are really all that good in that sense. Not that we're all sitting around and bad people, but I think you understand what I'm saying, that we have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. That there's things about each one of us that we wish were actually different, and we sometimes don't even know how to get on top of, and that is humanity. It's where we are. And so we need to talk about, in the developing conversation around who we are, this question of what do I do with my hang-ups? What do I do with the things that impede me from living out the very vision that God might have for my life? What do I do when I cannot or will not or fail again love my neighbor when I cannot live out the image of God to people around me? What do I do with the things that are, if you will, hang-ups? 
If you're not a Christian this morning, I get that, and, and it, I'm, what I'm talking about then is simply for you, your language might be with your mistakes, inadequacies, weaknesses, uh, failures, limitations, character flaws, whatever you want to call that, um, and I, that conversation is fine. We can have that. If you are a Christian, what I am talking about is a theological word um, that sometimes we're afraid to talk about, and it's the, the small three-letter word called sin. So sin is simply that which goes against the character of God, that which is against his will, the character of God against his will. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Those who aren't Christians, I understand where you're coming from, and your language might be different. You might talk about mistakes, bad habits, personality things. I get that, but that's, that's what I'm talking about this morning. So for me, um, as I think about sin, here's some of the effects that sin has on my life, and see if you can relate to this, okay? I realize that sin does a few things for me, and does more, but here's some few things. Sin actually makes me less efficient. I don't know if you thought about it this way or not, but I, when I spend time thinking about people in ways that I shouldn't, or thinking about things that I shouldn't, or doing things that are inappropriate or wrong way for me to spend my time, my priorities, I realize, shoot, I didn't actually get done the things that were of most importance to me. I gave space in my mind in thinking or acting in ways that I shouldn't be acting, and now now I am not efficient in doing what I really should be doing. Sin just, bottom line, makes me less efficient. Sin points me in a direction I don't actually want to be going. If I begin to think about you in a way that isn't appropriate, whether it's my own pride or criticism that gets in the way or judgmental spirit that gets in the way, it points me in a direction to judge you or evaluate you in a particular way. It moves me, it orients me toward you in this way when it really should be oriented through the love of God through the cross in this way. It just points me in a way and then it invites me to move down the path in the wrong direction, whether that's in business, whether that's in family, whether that's in my personal life, it points me in the wrong direction. Sin does a couple more things for me. It keeps me isolated. It's very shameful even to talk about sin and the impact of it on you. In fact, even to have the conversation can be weird and hard, especially in a coffee conversation. Hey, do you want to grab coffee? Great. Should we talk about Phillies? Yep. Sin? No. <laughs> so it can be, keep me isolated because how do we even engage and open the conversation around something like this, which seems so big? So it can keep me isolated and in my own little world. And sin also does this. It brings death and steals life all at the same time. It brings death and steals life. It, it steals my joy and introduces shame. It grows in the dark. We know this. So sin, we know this intellectually. Like these things are true intellectually. Whether you call it sin, failures, character flaws, mistakes, whatever you want to do, it's actually applicable to all of them. I would call this sin anything against the character or will of God. It does these things. So kind of how can I get on top of it? In other words, what do I do with the hang-ups that get me to this point? That's the question on the table this morning. And I, to, to move us down the road there, I want to address two things, and then I want to take us to a passage of Scripture that I hope can help. The first assumption I have under this, and I think I've said it before here, so I'm going to say it again. The first assumption is this. We can't actually keep our own standards. Before we even talk about God, we can't even keep our own standards. To my point about losing five pounds, that's not necessarily a godly thing. That's just a me thing. And then I ate too much last night at the dessert social last night. Like, this is a regular thing that I have. Forget God for a minute, just my own standards. I'm not even consistent with my own standards, and I don't think you are either. That's not a criticism. I think that's just humanity. But to, to, to make it worse, Christians believe that, <laughs> that people, actually these little kids, even the kids who just walked out of here, beautiful little kids, by the way, and I, uh, amazing, but we actually believe that people are born in sin. Like Christians believe that, that, that you're born oriented to steal the toys rather than to share the toys. Like you're born that I'm going to take it from you rather than give it to you. We don't have to teach our kids to share. We, we don't have to teach them to, to take. We have to teach them to share. That we think, Christians think, that is a, a human nature thing, that we're born in sin. So from the, very, from the jump, we believe that, that we are 
born into a space where we're oriented in the wrong direction. That's just the way it is. So not only can we not keep our own standards, we can't even keep God's standards. That's, that's even worse. Particularly if you want to please a perfect God. If you can't even please yourself, how in the world are you going to please a perfect God who has perfect standards? It's next to impossible. So it feels like we're kind of set up just to sin all the time. Like we're just kind of set up to engage our hang-ups all the time. So go ahead and be made in the image of God and be worth the life of God and understand your material and immaterial. But then, by the way, you're going to run into yourself everywhere you go, and you've met the enemy, and it is you, and it is me. So what in the world do we do with our hang-ups that keep coming right in front of us, if we're honest, over and over and over again with great regularity? So I want to take you to a passage of Scripture, actually three different chapters um, in the book of Romans. Uh, a guy named Paul, he ended up coming to faith in Christ later on after he hated Christians. He ended up coming back and saying, you know, actually, I had an experience with God that was profound. And so he writes, um, Paul uh, was a, uh, what we call the Pharisee. He was a brilliant man, and he was schooled in the Old Testament law. So he he understood the law of the Old Testament, and then also understood the grace of God through Christ in the New Testament. Uh, covenant. And so Paul writes in a book that he wrote, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, a new church, as every church in the New Testament is. But in Romans chapters 6, 7, and then into 8, he lays out some things about this issue of sin and humanity that I want to get into with you this morning, a really um, classic section of scripture on how we understand sin. So if you don't have a Bible with you, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. That's a gift we'd love to give to you. If you don't own one, we'd love to have you take that with you. Uh, But Romans is in the right two-thirds of your Bible. You'll find that um, as the sixth book in the New Testament, as we call it. I did my math quickly right now. I think that's that's true. Uh, So Romans chapter 6 is where we are, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 11 for us from the New International Version. And Paul's writing there, he says this, he says, in the same way, count yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's opening with a consideration, and this is about where I'm going to be this morning too. In other words, he's opening with a a, a worldview, a mentality, an attitude thing. He said, I want you to wake up in the morning. I want you to consider. I want you to count. I want you to see yourself. This is a mentality. This is an attitude. I want you to see yourself as dead to sin. You are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in my world, um, many years ago, when I was in high school, about five years ago in high school, right? Um, in the youth group we were in, for some reason, we must not have had a good youth pastor, I guess, Kevin, but um, our, our youth group went toilet papering one night. I don't know what that was about. I don't even know how that happened. Anyone, anyone do the toilet papering run when they were younger? Anyone do it when they were in their 40s? So to my point of that, how odd would it be for you now to read in the newspaper or to see on social media, hey, lead pastor of Grace Point Church caught toilet papering, trespassing at 2 a.m. in someone's house. So I will tell you, my urge to toilet paper has diminished over the years. It was interesting when I was in high school, like, hey, that'd be cool, let's go, you know, toilet paper, you know, Joe's house, that'd be so fun. So we did that. I don't know why, why do you people, anyway. My interest in toilet papering has waned over the years, and I would say that I count myself dead to toilet papering now. I mean, using it in that way at least, okay? (laughs) Moving on from that quickly. (laughs) 
So to his point, like there is a, this is how you should consider yourself, dead to it. Like you don't even have an, if someone were to say to you, Tim, like if you were to go and hang out with people and like, hey, Tim, do you want to now go toilet paper someone's house? I'm like, seriously? Are we, are like, are we in junior high is what I would say? Like, no, I have advanced from that, hopefully. I don't want to be in that space. I'm now dead to it. It doesn't even interest me. I, that doesn't stir anything in me to be like, oh, I'm really tempted to go toilet papering this week. I'm not tempted to go. I don't have any, there's nothing in there that has that desire anymore. Count yourselves dead to sin. That sounds great, like on paper. Count yourself dead to sin. That makes sense. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Super, it's really good. He goes on, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign as a result of that. Yeah, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. I have a problem with this immediately because Paul, if verse 11 says it's dead, how is it even possible that it could reign? He's saying don't let it reign, but I'm saying, Paul, something that's dead cannot reign. I cannot, that toilet papering desire cannot reign because it is dead. I mean, I, it's not going to reign. It's, it's dead. So I begin to get a clue, Paul, that maybe as easy as you made it sound in verse 11, it may not actually be that easy. He's saying, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Paul, how can it have desires if it's dead? It doesn't work. You can't have a dead thing have desires. It's dead. Anyway, let's go on. He says, verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For, he says, sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Again, this is profound. This is great. This is clear. Romans 6 is awesome. I mean, it makes it sound like if you're a Christian, like you have gotten on top of sin because of the gift of God through Christ. You, the, the desire for sin, you just, you just need to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I'm dead to sin. And I remember that weird toilet paper thing. Like, I don't no longer want to toilet paper someone's house. There we go. That makes sense. It's great. Except it's not that easy. It's not enough. It's kind of like putting cake in front of you or the dessert social last night and saying, I know you want to lose weight, but here it is. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? You think it will awaken desires that you actually don't want to have? Of course it will. So he goes on. In Romans 7, and it seems like we're actually dealing with a completely different person in Romans chapter 7. So flip the page or scroll down or whatever you need to do to get to Romans 7, verse 14. He goes on to write still about this topic in Romans 7.14. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You are confusing me, Paul. How can I be sold as a slave to sin if I'm dead to sin, which wasn't reigning in my body in Romans 6? We go on, verse 16, or 15. Excuse me. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do, as another bite of cake goes in my mouth. And if I do what I do not want to do, verse 16, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. How can sin be both living and dead, verse 18? For I know that that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The devil made me do it. 
But what is Paul saying? He summarizes it well, I think, in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 21. He identifies two laws at work. He said, so I find this law at work. The first one is this. Verse 21. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That's the first law. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. So let me summarize it this way up on the screen for you. I'm saying this, that wanting to do good isn't enough to make evil go away. This is important. And evil, by the way, by, by the word evil, I'm using it because Paul used it. When we use the word evil now, um, we, we're afraid to use that term in our society. I get it. We can, because we think that's, you know, ter- that's like Hitler, terrible evil. That's kind of what we think, um, you know, cr- crazy kind of evil. But evil is just simply, in Paul's world, in contrast to good. Instead of loving my neighbor when I judge you, instead that would be evil. Okay? Uh, instead of... Um, you know, in that space that I have of, of, of um, you know, uh, patience versus impatience. Instead of being patient, I'm impatient. That's evil rather than good. That's what I mean with my terms this morning. Okay, so I'm not talking about wicked Hitler evil. I'm just evil versus good. Wanting to do good isn't enough to make evil go away. So in order to make this better for visual learners, I decided to create a really complex diagram. So here you go. It's good, isn't it? So imagine yourself, you're the stick person. See, that's me after I lost my five pounds right up there. There we go, okay? Now here's what's happening. To pay close attention, this will happen quickly. If you want to do good, you move into the good circle. Let's do that again for the fun of animation. Now let me ask you this question. What happened to the evil circle? Right, I mean, so let's go back because this is kind of fun. Here we go. You're in the good circle. You want to do good, but all of a sudden you realize, shoot, like that evil circle hasn't actually gone anywhere. Like I want to do the good, but wanting to do good isn't enough to make evil go anywhere. It doesn't remove the temptation or desire. It doesn't go anywhere. Just wanting to do good isn't enough to make evil go away. It still resides. It lives. It sits there. It's not going anywhere. And this is what he says is, I find this law at work. Verse 21. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I want to, but ooh, there's the thing I shouldn't do. And then he goes on in verse 22, he's going to explain another law. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I mean, inside me, I delight in God's law. But, verse 23, contrast, I see another law. Here's law number two. At work in me, here's something else. Law number two, here's the other law. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me. Paul, what are you saying? Here's the second law, in in my words at least. The second law is this, that sin will never stop waging war against our best intentions. It will never stop waging war against our best intentions, which is why diets are hard, which is why habit changes are hard, which is why it's hard to get on top of the things that we keep fighting against, because sin will never stop waging war against our best intentions. The language of war is a language that Paul uses. It will keep coming, it will keep coming, it will keep coming, it will keep fighting against the law of the Spirit, it will keep fighting against the law of God inside of us. There's going to be this bombardment of that peace to us. And so in that language of war, Paul says, what can I, what can I do? He says in verse 20, 24, what a wretched man I am. 
And then he asks this question, which is the question I'm asking this morning. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I, mean, I didn't put it that way, but in other words, what in the world do I do with my hang-ups? What do I do with the things that aren't working for me? What do I do with the things that I keep finding in myself over and over and over again that I'm afraid are never going to get out of me that actually hurt my people around me and hurt me? hurt my business sometimes and hurt relationships? What do I do with the things about me that I would wish were not there? I found the enemy, Paul, and it is me. Yeah, I'd carry me everywhere I go. What do I do, he's asking. Who will rescue me from this war that's going on, this body that is subject to death? And then he offers a solution in verse 25. And then to chapter 8. Verse 25 of Romans chapter 7. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. He begins opening up a picture of what it looks like to do something with the struggle that exists within us. And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me. And so here's what I see, that... Paul pictures God as a deliverer. The means of God's deliverance is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He delivers me. That there's always a way out. There's a deliverer, a way out. That instead of taking the faith that you have and that I have in myself and getting better, instead of convincing myself or creating a system where I can become more patient, I can become more loving while there's some habits that maybe I can do. That Paul's saying, take that faith that you're going to put on you, take that faith that you're going to put on you, and remember this, you can't even keep your own standards. You can't even lose the way that you want to. You can't, even become, you can't keep your own standards. We kind of agreed to that at the beginning of this talk. You can't keep your own standards. Why put the faith on you to deliver yourself from the things that you can't deliver yourself from? So move the faith, move the confidence that you have in you, and move it, move it, move it, move it, over to God as the deliverer. Take your faith, take your faith, take your belief that you can get better, take the confidence you have that I I don't need to talk to anyone about this, I don't need to see a counselor, I don't need to confess to anybody, I don't need to go through any process like that. I can do this. There's too much shame in bringing it up. I can do this. I can see my way out of it. I can manage my way through the pain rather than kill it. I can manage it. He's saying, don't put your faith there. You can't even keep your own standards. Why do that? You can't keep... Don't do that. Take the faith that you have, move it over. Move it over to God and drop it in that space and say, God, I'm going to trust you through confession. I'm going to trust you through a community of confession to one another. I'm going to trust you by inviting people to pray for me. I'm going to trust that your way of working this through is better than mine. I'm going to trust that your son has died for me on this issue. I'm going to look for deliverance in your way and not in just my way. And so I'm going to move my trust from me as a deliverer to God as a deliverer. That's his first solution. And then he goes on, because this is kind of a really big, scary thing to talk about this stuff, getting underneath it all and the shame that comes with it. I understand that. He goes on in verse verse 1 of chapter 8. This is a really, really big idea. The biggest idea that I think I want you to understand this morning. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, as a result of all this that I've said, therefore, there is now, there wasn't before, but now, 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 there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now, because of what Christ has done, no condemnation for your sin. This is, this is so big an idea. The things that you do that are wrong and that I do that are wrong, that used to come with condemnation. When, when you would think a lustful thought, it would come with condemnation. When you would think an angry thought, it would come with condemnation. When you used to run the books this way, it would come with condemnation. When you used to be critical of in judgment, it would come with condemnation. And Paul is saying, the condemnation that you deserve, that I deserve, for the things that we do, there is no longer condemnation for you anymore. It is no longer there. This doesn't make any sense. So you're saying, Paul, that the, there's no condemning anymore? Is that what you're saying? Like, yes, will you feel bad? Maybe. Will there be consequences? Maybe. But you're saying there's no condemnation. And here's how he explains this. Like, I'm asking a question. I'm going to raise my hand and say, Paul, help me understand this. Why do you say that? And is it actually true? Look what he says in verses 2 on through 4. He says, here's why I say that. Because, because, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned, <laughs> this is a big idea right here, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why is there no condemnation for you? Because Christ condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit and if you're confused right now i get it let me try to clarify it the power of sin is gone the reason condemnation can come is because sin has power if sin no longer has power over you condemnation cannot come on you if christ has taken sin and condemned it there is no longer such a thing as condemnation. And so the thing that you should deserve for doing what you do, Paul is just saying, by the way, yep, when you lust, when you're arrogant, when you're unforgiving, when you're impatient, I get it. I get it. Might there be consequences? Sure. You know who's getting condemned for that? Christ already has on the cross. You're actually not any worse off in the eyes of God. After what you have done, because of the way that God sees you, that is crazy. You're not condemned for that. You've been a jerk, you're not condemned for that. You failed, you're not condemned for that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you put yourself under the grace of God who through his son Jesus Christ took sin and said, yep, the power of that to condemn you, to make you feel shame, to make you feel like you're worthless, I'm going to take the power of that, I'm going to kill it by dying, taking the worst consequence of sin possible, and I'm going to overcome that. And so what exactly power does sin have remaining other than just to make you feel shame, that's not condemnation. To make you feel worthless, that's not condemnation. To make you feel guilty, that's not condemnation. You actually are not condemned for the sin that you commit when you're in Christ Jesus. This is ridiculous. But that's what Paul writes about. And that's why he'll say, you are no longer a slave to sin. And so I just want to say two things. Number one, there's always a deliverer. There's always a deliverer. And number two, there's no condemnation. There's none at all. Now, let me share this story because this is kind of what I really want to get under for you. Years ago, probably 
seven, ten years ago, I don't know, our family had the chance to go to Disney World for a trip, which was a lot of fun, mostly. Um, I, by the way, I got permission from my daughter to share this story, so there you go. Um, so my oldest daughter, Megan, um, loves to eat a lot of new foods, as long as they are grilled cheese and peanut butter and jelly. I mean, anything in that tree is fine, okay? Is that about right? I think that's about right, yeah. So we were at Disney World, and we're at a restaurant waiting uh, for our food to come. It was an Italian restaurant, pizza, waiting for pizza, good pizza to come. And so Italian restaurant, they provide uh, salad first, you know, and, and whatever, you know, wait for the, for the food to come. And there's so many people that it can be a long wait for the real meal to come. So we're sitting there, and there's this big salad. Um, and Megan was very young, I mean, 10 years ago, whatever. Um, so Uncle Wes says, hey, Megan, while we're trying to kill time here, I'll buy you ice cream if you eat that olive. And this created such fun around the table. Such consternation around the olive. The olive was placed in front of Megan, and the reward for dessert was amazing. I mean, here's potential ice cream. All I need to do is eat the olive. And, and um, so we take the olive, and we're not sure. We kind of put it near the mouth, take it out, near the mouth, put it out. So we're all now tuned into this, you know, all 11 or 12 of us as a family around this, kind of tuned into what will happen, killing time between, before the pizza comes. And you put it in, and water. And then, like, hands shaking, like, kind of. Seven minutes later, the olive is down, and the excitement is high. It's awesome. We did it. We were going to get ice cream. And then Grandpa says, hey, I'm planning to buy everybody ice cream anyway. <laughs> and here's what I want to tell you. Don't ever trust Grandpa. No. <clears throat> God has already bought the ice cream for you. God has already paid the price for what you are striving for. When you work to try to prove that you are no longer condemned, when you take the hang-ups in your life and say, let me fight on them for you, God. Let me work to make my sin and failure better. Let me manage my pain in the dark. Let me work hard and be concerned about this and strive and strive and strive and fight and thrash and push to make myself just a little bit better so that maybe I can get the reward of feeling like I belong. Maybe I can earn your favor. Maybe I can find a place and space where I can get that satisfaction of, ah, there's, there's ice cream. That God has already said, I mean, I mean, good luck with the striving. But there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You do not need, you do not need to fight for this. You do not need to fight for this. You do not need to fight against this. You don't need to try to make yourself better on the back end. You can't even keep your own standards in the first place. Don't set up new standards that you can't keep on the back end anyway. And so the invitation from Paul is this. See what God has done for you. See what God has done for you. He has purchased for you a space of no condemnation. 
He's invited you to take your faith and move it from what you can do, to move it to what Christ has already done for you. There's always a deliverer, and there's never condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So a couple things. One, I would want to encourage you to memorize Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for you, anyone who is in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. It's different than shame, different than guilt. There's no condemnation. You are not condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, if you don't know this Christ, if you don't know what it looks like to take that faith, that confidence, and move it from you and move it over to God, these are the conversations we want to have with you here at Grace Point Church. Our cards on the table, we believe your life is going to be better and the lives of people around you by following Jesus Christ. We believe there's a hope in eternity waiting for all of us, that knowing Jesus matters, and we want you to know him. So we'd love to have that conversation with you. So what are you going to do with your hang-ups? What am I going to do with my hang-ups? There's always a deliverer. There's always a deliverer. And there's no condemnation. Next week, we're going to talk about where in the world are we going in our humanity. Look forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning to see again in your word the hope and the truth that there is a God who has cared so deeply for us that he's entered into the space that we exist with all the pain and brokenness that that means and taken the condemnation that should be ours and put it on his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it is a faith thing to see that and it requires faith to place our hope in that and I pray that you would help us to continue to do that and give us the courage to move from any striving that we might be trying to create, any work that we might be trying to do to find that place of peace and satisfaction and assurance in your sight. And move that in faith over to your son, Jesus Christ. Remind us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the power of sin is gone. We know, we know that sin will never stop waging war against our best intentions. We know that even though we're in the good circle, the evil circle isn't going anywhere. We know that. I pray that you would help us with the courage we need to continue to keep our faith, continue to keep our lives squared up with the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those who don't know your son this morning, I pray that you would help us to have the courage to have the conversations, to explore more of what this faith looks like and how it might matter for our lives. We thank you, Father. We love you. We ask for your courage to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray.